I'm so glad to be here. And so I, I took a weird road to the association. I never wanted to be in ministry. Uh, I never wanted to be in ministry. And just truthfully, all cards on the table so we get to know each other. I never wanted to be in Texas. And I, yeah, so <laughs> that's the reaction I thought I would get. So everybody was like, oh, you didn't want to be in ministry. Wait, wait, you never wanted to be in Texas. Hold on. <laughs> thought we liked you. So I, I came to Texas to go to college, uh, and that was really the extent I thought our relationship would be. Uh, I went to TCU. They beat UT yesterday, by the way. So uh, yeah, there are a couple of Aggies in the house that are happy about that. The rest, pretty quiet about that. But I, I went to TCU uh, on an Army scholarship, and that I planned on a career in the Army. Now, I grew up in church, came to know the Lord uh, for real. Uh, when I was seven years old, had a life-transforming experience, uh, got saved out of a mob life. No, not really. Um, but when I was seven years old, my life radically changed, and that's a story that I'll tell you some other time. But I grew up in church, and so I knew, I, I knew all the verses, I knew all the songs, grew up in church, was there all the time. Um, you know, we were three times a week uh, people, and so, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we were there, you know, uh, even Tuesday night for a, a brief time. And so I knew all the answers, but I really didn't understand um, how churches were supposed to work together. I didn't understand what it was for a church to be on mission, and I didn't understand what it was for me to be on mission. And so while I was reading the Bible and while I was doing my thing, I was planning my own life and, and you know, praying and saying, okay, God, I have this plan, now bless it. And so I went to college with that expectation, and I, I fell in with a group of uh, college students that were just absolutely on fire for the Lord. And I fell into a college department at Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth that was on fire for the Lord. And that's where I met my wife, who's, who's sitting here on the front row. And, and I fell in with these students. And as I got to know uh, college students who were on fire for the Lord, and as I was trying to keep up with them, uh, I, I started to have um, a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And over the course of my freshman year and going into my sophomore year of college, uh, God got a hold of me in a fresh way and said, it's, it's cute that you have your life plan all worked out, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to need that. And if you're serious about following me, and if you're serious about the things that you read about taking up your cross and following me daily, then um, I'm going to need you to follow me where I'm going, not just asking me to bless where you think you're going. And so in the middle of my sophomore year, I surrendered my army scholarship, which my army captain was not at all thrilled about. Um, and I, I gave up some things. And, and so when people say they surrendered to the ministry, I really did surrender to the ministry. It cost me $12,000 to go into the ministry. And so I walked in, I turned in my boots, I turned in my uniform, and I walked out, and I had almost no plan. And so I, I drove up to a college, and there's a whole extended story there. But a couple months later, I was offered a job working with, with uh, junior high students in a little town called Katy, Texas. Now, this is back in the mid-90s, and so you couldn't just Google where Katy, Texas was. And so I had to get out a paper map and find Katy, Texas on a paper map, which is really tricky to do. And so I drove down to Katy, Texas uh, the summer of 1996, Intending just to stay the summer, which I'm from Colorado, y'all. 
I came to Katy, Texas in the summer. That, that's right. That was a surrender for Jesus, okay? And I, ex I expected to stay just those two months. I figured that was pretty much my call to missions right there. That was the same as going to Africa as far as I was concerned. And so when they asked me to stay year-round... I figured, okay, I paid my dues the summer. It's certainly, it's going to turn to fall at some point. <laughs> it does. Right as soon as they start playing Christmas music, it starts raining a lot. That's what we call fall. And so I, you know, I fell into this year-round employment in the ministry. I still really had no idea what that meant. And then before I knew it, I had been in ministry for several years at that point. And I was helping uh, this church. I, I became an associate pastor at a different church. And then that pastor left. And I became an interim pastor the day after 9-11. Which is not ideal start time for being an interim pastor. So the Wednesday night prayer service the day after 9-11, the, the church is looking at me going, what do we do? And I said, well, we're going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to pray a lot. And so... We're just going to figure this out. We're going to pray, and we're going to pray some more. And the next 20 months after that, we prayed a lot, and we, we struggled through what it was for a church to navigate change. And it was in that process that I really fell in love with helping churches navigate change, which is a very weird, quirky calling to have on your life. And so I began to seek out, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I help churches navigate change without you know most people who do this either write three bestsellers or they do it at the end of their career after they've been in ministry for 30 years i was 25 at the time and i had done neither of those things and so at that point i'm like all right i want to work with multiple churches doing this and so i sought out the association because they worked with multiple churches but at that point i still didn't really understand how churches were supposed to work together and it was while working at the association, while they were working with churches, that I learned about how churches were supposed to be on mission together. And it has really informed my sense of what missions is supposed to look like in the grand scheme of things. And I've come to three real core convictions. And so I want to share those with you today, and I want to kind of break those out. First of all, I'm convinced that the mission for the church is clear. That the task is enormous and that the peace of the city requires a team. So let's talk about that for a second. The mission for the church is clear. And you've heard it already this morning, which I think is fantastic. But let's talk about what Matthew says at the end of his gospel, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And so when we talk about the Great Commission, we're talking about a very specific couple of verses there at the end of Matthew 28. And it says, go therefore. And this is Jesus' last instructions to his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And when he says nations there, the, the Greek there is ethne. He's talking about people. Go and make disciples of all people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So think about that for just a second. Jesus says to his disciples, the very last set of instructions that he gives, and this is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, he tasks his disciples with making more disciples of all the nations on earth, all the people on earth. 
simply by teaching them to obey what Jesus has already imparted to them. And couched in that, he has given them the hope and the reassurance that he will be with them through that entire process all the way to the end of the age. He says, go and make disciples and I will be with you every step of the way. And if you think that is a unique little snippet in Scripture, I need to tell you that the whole Bible is about missions. The whole Bible is about evangelism. The Bible is a story of God gathering people to himself, redeeming creation, and inviting us to be a part of that redemption story. If you go back to the creation story, you see that the peace, the shalom, if you look in Hebrew, that peace, that rhythm that was in creation was broken by sin. The special relationship that God and man had together was broken by that sin of rebellion. And ever since then, the redemption, that, that putting back together of the shalom has been woven throughout the entire scripture. God makes a promise to Abraham and says, the faith that you have shown will be a blessing to all nations, not just to Abraham's descendants. So many of the prophets speak about God's glory and, and promise to the rest of the nations. You look at the story of Jonah, he was one of my favorite prophets to talk about because he's such a funny, quirky guy. One of the most reluctant, but one of the best prophets. I mean, pound for pound, one of the best prophets in the Old Testament. Three days in a city of more than 120,000 people. They all repent, and he's bitter about it. It's one of the best stories in the Bible. But the story of Jonah is not about Jonah. The story of Jonah is about how God wanted to work in the city of Nineveh, which is not a, a city of Jews. And so, here is a story about God's compassion for people who were not considered to be God's people. But God says to this very reluctant, bitter prophet, why should I not be concerned about these people? Do you not see all these people? And so you see God again and again extending his story and extending his redemption and his grace to the nations. And then the proclaimed descendant of Abraham, the one who would rule from the throne of David, the one who will be the grace and the mercy, the one that we know as Emmanuel, God with us, is born, and it is Jesus, the anointed one, the Savior. He comes, and he leads his disciples on this very intentional path of relationships that constantly includes non-Jews, like the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Roman centurion whose faith he commends in Matthew uh, chapter 8. And so then he, Jesus goes to have a meal at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And, and the Jews who are watching him do this say, Why would you have a meal at that sinner's house? And Zacchaeus repents. He has a life-transforming event, as I imagine you probably would if Jesus has a meal at your house. And so after Zacchaeus turns his life around, Jesus says, you know, redemption has come to this house. Faith has come to this house. And then Jesus tells the people, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. He says, this is my mission. This is why I have come, to seek and save the lost. The rest of the New Testament is about how we should tell others. How people go out from Jerusalem and go out throughout the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. Planting churches, talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and how the forgiveness, love, grace, and mercy is available to all who would believe in Jesus. We talk about Paul's missional imperative. If you, if you dig deep into the book of Romans, you'll find in Romans 15, in Romans 15, 20, Paul says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never, been, uh, who have never heard will understand. So Paul says, I don't want to go where people have already heard about Jesus. I want to go where they haven't heard about Jesus. I want to go where no one has ever gone before. And so Paul says, we have to go where they don't know about Jesus. That's where we have to go. And he quotes Isaiah from the Old Testament just to underscore that missional imperative. The whole Bible is about missions. The story of the Bible is God gathering people back to himself. And every one of us is called to be part of that mission. To be a Christian is to be on mission. To be sent on mission is implied. And where we are sent is not always known. It's one of the best parts of when Jesus is calling the original disciples. He says, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. And the best part of that story, especially for me, when I, when I initially said, okay, I'm, I guess I'm not going in the army, I guess I'm going to go do this now, whatever this is, is I look back at that disciple story, and they said, okay, Jesus, we are going to follow you, and we're going to be fishers of men. And they had no idea where they were going. He said, follow me, and they just did. It said they left the boats and the nets, and they just followed him. Nobody said, where are we going, Jesus? And I got to tell you, if I was there, I would have been that guy. Now, they probably would have edited me out of Scripture at that point. But I would have been like, hey, Peter, James, and John, yeah, we're all going. Anybody have any idea where we're going? But they followed him. They followed because Jesus is enough. And we as disciples, if we turn our life over to Jesus, we say, we will go where you go because you are Lord. You are our Savior, and we trust you with our lives. And so you are sending us out. So where you are sending us, we will go. It is implied. Now, some of you in this room right now are getting nervous. I know you are. Because I sat under sermons like this before. Especially my freshman year of college, I sat under sermons like this and I felt a little stirring going, please, 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 don't let it be me. I have a plan, <laughs> you know, and I had a very detailed plan. I had a scholarship writing on that plan. And somebody in here might be sitting there going, I, please don't make eye contact with me because I, I have a plan. I don't, I don't want to go. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And that's okay. Because if the God of the universe is calling you to do something awesome, it's okay to be awestruck by that calling. But the God of the universe may be calling you to be the next missionary, to be the next church planter, to be the next pastor, to be the next chaplain, to be the next Bible study leader at your workplace. I don't know what your calling is, but I can guarantee you there is a calling on your life. Because it is implied as a follower of Christ. You may have a, a heart to reach an unreached people group. 
You know, the greater Houston area is home to more than 350 different ethno-linguistic people groups. More than 220 languages are spoken in our midst. And God may be raising you up to reach that unreached people group. And you may be thinking, hey man, I have a heart for that, but I don't have the first idea what to do about that. You come to our booth, we will give you some help. Because I can guarantee you this, when you are sent out, you will not be sent out unsupported. God won't let you do that by yourself. It is inherent in the call that you will be sent and supported. I had a guy come to my office one time, and this is a fairly regular occurrence for me, that that people will come to my office and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about ministry, I'm thinking about this or that, can you give give me some advice? And this guy came to my office, and he he said, hey, I want to get into the ministry. Um, I have two master's degrees in fine arts, and I did an internship at Pixar. Um, I want to be a a, a missions pastor. And I said, man, that's, that's great. Uh, have you thought about working at Pixar? Because it sounds like you can. And I guarantee you that most of the people in my office cannot work at Pixar. Have you thought about planting a church inside of Pixar? And he said, well, uh, no, I haven't thought about that. But I, most of the people who work at Pixar are really too busy to go to church. I said, I know. Uh, have you thought about being one of those people? that maybe worked around those people 60 to 80 hours a week and maybe being a missionary to Pixar? Because it sounds to me like you're uniquely qualified to do that. And actually, it sounds to me like Pixar is willing to pay you to plant a church inside of Pixar. Have you thought about being a missionary to Pixar? And he said, well, that wouldn't be real ministry. I swear to you, I've never wanted to punch a guy so bad in my life. He never, I never did convince him. I talked to him for more than 45 minutes, and he just couldn't get through his head that that would be real ministry. I'm like, dude, two master's degree in fine arts. You could be making movies and leading people to Jesus at the same time, people that I will never, ever have an opportunity to be around. And you could be sharing Jesus with them. That's real ministry. The mission is clear. It's just a matter of calling, and not all callings are the same. And it's also a matter of location. And while we're talking about location, let's talk about my, my second conviction. The task is enormous. You know, I told you I'm from Colorado originally, and I really had no idea what kind of place the greater Houston area was until I really started to get into it. And as I, every summer, really question why God has put me here, and you'd think that being here since the mid-90s, I would have gotten over it by now. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I just need a couple more decades, and I'll be there. But every summer, a a verse in Acts 17 really resonates in my head. I want to read it to you. Acts 17, 26. It says, From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This is Paul talking to the Greeks there in Athens, and he says that God put people in their time and place so that people would come to know him. You are put here in a time and a place so that people would come to know you. So what kind of place are we talking about? You know, Harris County on most years adds about 80,000 people every year. We've had a couple of down years lately, and in the down years, we added about 34,000 people every year. 
That's roughly the population of Friendswood <laughs> every year. That's a down year. And so the greater Houston area, when you add the other counties to Harris County, we add about 1,750 people a week, and 10% of those people come to Brazoria County, mostly into Pearland. Every week, every week, 1,750 people come to the area. Now, between 2000 and 2010, the greater Houston area grew by more than a million people, about 1.2 million people. Already, since 2010, we've added another million people. Now, I don't have to tell you that since 1990, Pearland has more than tripled in its population. Because I know Pastor David throws that stat out a lot. Now, numerical growth doesn't tell the whole story, right? Because not all those people moving into the area are the same kind of people, right? We have different languages, different cultures, different worldviews. When people talk about cities, there is no one city culture. We have all kinds of overlapping cultures when you look at the kind of people that are living here. And for every culture that is here, it requires a different gospel strategy. Which is why no one church is going to reach this place by itself. The task is enormous. Did you know that the second largest concentration of Houston's most unreached people group is about a 10-minute to 15-minute drive from where you are right now? Did you know that Houston is, is the number one hub for human trafficking victims? Did you know that Houston has more uh, victims of STDs than any other major American city? Did you know that with Houston's medical center, the largest medical center in the world, we have people coming every day asking eternal questions, life and death questions. This should be a place where the gospel is prevalent. And no church, no church can accomplish the Great Commission by itself because the task is enormous. Because remember, the Great Commission is to go to all nations. Not just the nations that are within a two-mile radius of any one church. Not just all the nations that are in Pearland, but all nations. And so what does it look like for a church that really wants to accomplish the Great Commission? For a church to try and do that by itself, it would look like a one-man baseball team. Right? It would look absolutely ridiculous. I mean, even the best baseball player cannot play baseball by himself. It would look ridiculous. Even if you had, you know, Verlander on the hill or Cole on the hill, he throws a good, somebody's going to get a hit at some point, right? Verlander throws a, a smoking fastball down the middle. Somebody gets some little dinky hit. Now he has to run over into the field because remember, he's got no, no shortstop. So Verlander runs over, picks up the baseball, throws to nobody. And so he has to run over to first base and try and get the guy out before that guy makes it from home plate to first base. This is ridiculous. Churches that try and accomplish the Great Commission by themselves look like a one-man baseball team. It's not supposed to be done that way. And so when you put it in terms like that, of course it sounds ridiculous. There's a reason that God designed the body to work like a body. Because it's, it's going to take all kinds of different parts. So the Union Baptist Association, one of our core convictions, comes from the Great Commission. And our mission 
comes from this great commission. We are a, a collaborative network of churches strategically advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. And most associations around, I know Gulf Coast is here, the Gulf Coast Association works exactly the same way. We work to bring churches together to accomplish the Great Commission because it can't be done any other way. The mission is clear, the task is enormous, and the peace of the city requires a team. Now let me give you a, a passage of scripture that you're probably not as familiar with. And this comes out of Jeremiah chapter 29. It's not the coffee cup verse that you think I'm going to. It's a couple verses before that. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now this is written to the exiles that were carried there from Jerusalem into Babylon who think they are going back to Jerusalem any day now. And the Lord sends instructions through his prophet to say a couple of things. First of all, that they're not going home any day now. And so these are some instructions about how to live while they are in exile. And he says this, Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, this is, this is my verse. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Instructions to the exiles. Seek the welfare of the city into which I have sent you into exile because in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare, if you look in the Hebrew, that is the word shalom. It is that word peace. And so if you're going to seek the peace of the city, where you are living, it's not your city, but it is where God has you for a particular time and place. And God wanted those exiles to know, you need to be a blessing to the Babylonians because I have put you there for a time and a place. You need to pray for their welfare. You need to pray for their peace. And those instructions are very uncommon for the literature of the day. For To pray for their captors, you're not going to find that in just any literature of the day. But God is telling his people, you pray for your captors. You pray for those pagans. You pray for their welfare. You pray for the peace. Because they knew that the ultimate overthrow of Babylon was certain. That was already told to them by other prophets. And what they were basically doing was biding their time. They're saying, hey, Babylon's going to get theirs. We just got to wait it out, and then we will go home. And God's saying, no, we already know what's going to happen to Babylon. But in the meantime, you pray for their peace. You pray for their welfare. You find ways to enmesh yourselves in the community. You bless those who are around you. And not just prayer, but prayer and good works and service. You be a part of the community. You reach out to your neighbors. You love your neighbors as yourself. I think I read that somewhere. And so as you are doing prayer and as you are doing good works, as you are seeking the peace for the city, we can't do that by ourselves. It takes a team. And while we're on the subject, let's not take our eye off the ball. 
random acts of kindness, acts of service, all of those things are good things for the church to do. But the one thing that the church has to offer that is unique apart from the world is the gospel. The one thing that the church has that the world doesn't have is Jesus. And so while I don't want us to get trapped in a let's, let's just offer the cup of cold water and they'll find Jesus by accident, that's absolutely not what we should do. We can't just offer Jesus and hope that they find the cup of cold water on their own somewhere else. We have to do both. The Bible is very clear about that. But we have got to be in this business of praying for the peace and the welfare of the city in which we are in. And so I'm so glad that there are so many partners here in Camp Hope because they represent so many different constituencies and so many different needs throughout our community. And so I hope, if you haven't already, that you make your way around to all the booths and that you pray sincerely, God, what is it that you are calling in me? What is it that you are stirring in me to do about these various needs? Because it is going to take all of us, if we are serious about seeing peace in our city, we have to work together to accomplish that goal. And when we work together, amazing things happen. See, one of the great things that I get to do is I get to coach my son's soccer team. I get to coach a bunch of eight and nine-year-olds, and this year we're playing up a division. We're playing in the under 10-year-old division. And so most of the teams they play are older than my son. And so, um, you know, I, I've coached Gavin's team now for a few years. And, and initially, when you, I don't know how many of you have, have seen little kids play soccer but when they're four and five they're just happy to be on the field right if there's a ball near them that's a happy coincidence and if somebody scores even better right and so it, it's bunch ball you know and then eventually you get a little bit older and kids develop skills and one or two kids start to take over the game because they have more skills than the others and, and so the concept of dribbling, which is, you know, taking the ball and working your way down the field, that sets in for the kids that have skills. And so they move from being happy to be on the field to now they want to be on the field with the ball. And then at some point as a coach, you introduce the notion of passing. And coupled with passing is this idea of give me the ball, right? So if you have skills, it's the... I want the ball, you have the ball, you should give me the ball. And in the best of scenarios, it is not, they take the ball from their teammate. So I'm happy to report my team does not do a whole lot of taking from our own teammates and then dribbling down the field. Now, we have really worked hard this season on not just passing to our teammates, but being open for the pass. And not just calling for it, because they get that notion very quickly, but actually being open to receive a pass, right? Moving away from the ball, you know, being prepared to receive a pass. Because what that is, that's really high-level teamwork thinking. That is making life better for your other teammates. But here's what happens. When that starts working, man, it looks like magic. Because a couple of weeks ago, we played a game, and and not only were the passes looking good, but we had kids running to open spots. And so a kid would dribble down the field, and he just knew where his teammate was going to be, and bam, passes to that teammate. And she knew where the next pass was going to be, and bam, that pass goes. And all of a sudden, we look like a well-oiled pinball machine, and boom, 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 goal. And the other team is just standing there like, what just happened? 
And, they, and you could see even the parents on the other field going, uh-oh. And, you know, and us as coaches, you know, we start to beam a little bit because we're like, it's a breakthrough, you know? All the, all the hours of practice and coaching, it's starting to finally sink in, you know? And, and our team, they're on to something now because now we have scored a goal using the drills that they never thought had practical application. They just thought we were making them run. And so now the passing starts to happen more often. And now we score another goal and another goal. And now we're starting to really run it up on the other team. And it was amazing that when the passing starts happening and the team starts working together, the other team never knew what hit them. And I can promise you this. When the church starts acting like a team, when the church starts loving the world around it, the people will not know what hit them. The mission is clear. The task is enormous. And the peace of the city requires a team. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great. And you're awesome. And you are sending us out. Lord, I, I know that there are people here today that are being sent out. You have placed a unique calling on them. You are doing a work in them. And Lord, I want to praise you in advance for what you're doing. Lord, I thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for a Sunday that we can park and just not only remind ourselves that the mission is clear, but also that the task is enormous, that we need each other, that we need to play as a team. Lord, that you have placed us in a gigantic mission field for a time and a place so that people might come to know you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would move in a way that only you can, that you would speak clearly that you would open our eyes, that you would move our feet with courage. And Lord, that it would be you who gains glory for yourself, that it would not be this church, that it would not be any organization, not any association, that it would be you. Lord, gain glory for yourself today. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.